As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. On today's episode, I want to ask you, Paul, why doesn't the Online Academy offer a speech class? Because we well, offer don't answer that. We're going we're to get to it in a minute. <laughs> but before we get there, I wanted to ask, have you all been reading anything recently? <laughs> um, we just did. We just recorded our episode on reading Wendell Berry's short story, Fidelity. Which so turned out to be 90 pages. <laughs> we all read that and it's long. <laughs> it's more like a novella. But Martin, anything else? Uh, I have just about finished uh, Lewis Marcos's book from Plato to Christ, oh, yeah. which uh, is is a great articulation of uh, how you um, how what Christianity has to do with the wisdom of the ancients, and it's it's a it's a brilliant book. When you're reading it, do you picture him in your head just waving his arms and like you know in a white in his white jacket? <laughs> no. uh, uh, yes, I do. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, because he's one of those. There, there are writers. Um, who write the way they speak. Mm. You can hear their voice. You can hear yes. their voice. And that's the, the best kind of writer, right. really, I think. Um, Tracy Lee Simmons, I think, is that mm. way too. He's just as wise and <laughs> cultured in person as he, as he is in his, in his books. Um, so yes, I, I, his personality is very much reflected in his writing. Donnie, did you finish Mansfield Park? I did. Well, I only had six pages. So I want to give you a space <laughs> it all turned to address out okay. Dr. Sundet. Oh, she and I just need to, she needs to come back and we need to do an episode on Mansfield yeah. Park because she, she is the reason that I read it again. And I am so glad that I did because I really um, became a fan of Fanny. I just okay. really think I read it too young and I was just mm. too self-centered and I just needed Fanny to be, I guess I needed all heroines to have my personality. Mm. <laughs> Which is definitely not Fanny's yes, personality. Yes, thank the Lord. <laughs> yes, well, but I'm reading a book about the Inklings to get ready for the Memorial College England tour. So mm-hmm. it's a book that Joseph Pierce recommended okay. that gives the history of the Inklings. It sure. seems to me to be mainly about C.S. Lewis okay. and everything's, everybody surrounding him. I'd like more Tolkien in there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Paul? I finished reading The Bridge of St. Louis Ray, San Luis. I don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce that like Spanish or like English, but San Luis Ray, I suppose. I don't know. Um, didn't love it. I mean, it, I wouldn't not recommend it to somebody, but. I think I attempted that story and got bogged down. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know if I would have finished it if it hadn't been for the fact that I had to sit on a tractor for four hours and listen to it. So yeah, I'm reading nonfiction. Are you reading fiction? I am. uh, Well, no, I'm reading nonfiction. I I just finished fiction. Oh, okay. It's just, this is the opposite. The Inklings book. Oh, Inklings. Mm -hmm. That's right. No. So I finished reading. I think I mentioned before and and I wanted to bring this up because I think I have to revise my take a little bit. And that is I finished reading Till We Have Faces. And this is my mm. second time reading it. And I had only, I was only like maybe six or seven chapters in when I mentioned it last time. And I remember I kind of critiqued it because his symbolism is, is so at the overt. Front. However, until we have faces, what he does with some of the structure and of the storytelling with the two books, um, 
and uh, I think it's Princess Orwell is the name of the character. Um, she finishes writing the retelling of her life and then she starts a second retelling. Like she's like, I'm writing the second book about the last book in the story at the end. And then it picks up from a third perspective at the end. And some of that is very clever the way that it's structured. And so I think in some of the particular characters, it's a little on the nose, but where he lands is pretty, pretty clever. It's great. And I don't so know if I you said it, it, but this is C.S. Lewis's Till We C.S. Have Lewis's Till We Have Faces. That's right. So I really enjoyed it. Well, that's fun. Yeah. So then I picked up uh, my favorite author. I mention all the time. I'm just trying to read everything you wrote. Uh, Al Jacobs wrote a book called Shaming the Devil, Essays and Truth Telling. And he's an essayist. And so I just picked it up and have read the first essay so far. Um, that Shaming the Devil is a phrase that comes from Henry the Fourth, Part 1. Someone mm-hmm. says that, I think, to Hotspur. Um, and he says the way to shame the, or I think maybe Hotspur says it, but the way to shame the devil is to tell the truth. And so. I've never heard of this author oh, before. I'm, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to admit that I have several of his books on my bookshelf and have not read them. Mm. Alan Jacobs. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Paul, I want to come back to you. Because I cut you off the first time. I can repeat my answer. I get asked fairly frequently, what should my student do for speech? You know, and we don't have a speech class at Highland Science School. Why not? What are you doing at the Online Academy? So what we're doing at the Online Academy is we teach rhetoric. We teach the principles of persuasion. Obviously, that comes after they've learned effective argumentation. Um, you pair that with, with the pro-gymnosmata and classical composition. You've learned lots of techniques of how to be persuasive. And so we're giving them all the tools um, the only other thing then to do is to get up and use those tools in a public forum. And I, I could see how that could be, uh, useful in a brick and mortar classroom, but in an online classroom, it's not going to feel like public speaking any more than <laughs> speaking to your, you know, stuffed animal in your bedroom, you know? So, uh, what I often encourage parents to do is just all you have to do is find a way for that child to get up in front of people because they have all, they've been given all the tools if they've gone through the program. Um, and, and I, I went through some speech classes as a kid and they weren't giving me any tools. It was basically just get up there and give a talk. How, how much, but, but, that's kind of how I felt. Yeah, I talk about what, yeah. uh, right. And so then as, as my education continued on and I was given some of those tools then it became a whole lot easier to get up there and, and, and do it. But I mean, it, it just things like, uh, I remember, I think it was Cheryl. If not, it was another teacher I had young that made us memorize Mark Antony's speech, friends, Romans, mm-hmm. countrymen. Right. And then get up and just, Declaim that in front of the class, right? In front of other people. Like that's helping you get over those nerves of public mm-hmm. speaking. But we've given you like in, in logic and rhetoric, we give you all the tools to be able to craft something persuasive. Okay. It is it is harder for the homeschooler. I I would have if my kids hadn't been in a cottage school, they I mean, there's no way that it would be the same to stand up and recite something to me like it is in a classroom. But I recently, I listen to all the Horatius videos that come in from the homeschoolers mm. and then I award them the prize. And I recently had one that was that they did as part of, it was a homeschool group 
and they they had like a recitation night for just a group of homeschoolers in somebody's home. And this one student stood up and recited all 70 stanzas of Horatius at the Bridge. But to the whole all group. Of this, to the whole group. And, but all the great. students had an opportunity to recite. And I thought that was so easy mm-hmm. to get together a group of people that you know. Everybody has, it's like a piano recital, mm-hmm. only I'm sure probably more. Um, well, I guess a piano recital too is going to have all different ages, but this was. This was Very all different diverse. ages, yep. and you know, I guess it culminated in seventy stanzas. Wow. But I thought that was a great idea. I hadn't seen anything like that before. Now, Martin, you literally wrote the book on the book on classical rhetoric. The book on the book. I did. <laughs> Why did you write that initially? Was that something that Mrs. Lowe prompted you to write, or was it just an interest you had, or wh- where? Well, that come I mean, from? Uh, one of the seven liberal arts is rhetoric. Um, and it comes last, I think, for a reason. You know, there's a progression from grammar, you know, knowing how language works, and then logic, which is knowing how to argue, and then rhetoric, which is articulating all that in a way that in, that will appeal to an audience. And so uh, you're referring to my book, Rhetoric, which is uh, basically just a study guide to Aristotle's rhetoric. And Aristotle's rhetoric is really fundamentally simple. There's just really three things, um, ethos, logos, and pathos. Ethos is the character of the speaker. You're persuasive in a speech. If people get, you know, if people can see that you know what you're talking about, that you're an honest person and, and, and are telling them, the, the, probably telling them the truth, um, these sorts of things. Um, then there's logos, which is the rational strength of your arguments, the logic of, of your arguments. And then there's pathos. You have to have this ability to um, to be able to make what you're saying emotionally appealing. You have to be able to appeal to the emotions of your audience. You need to enroll those in what you're saying. And those are three very different things. You know, I, I, I see a lot of spe- speakers who are good in one and not one or more of the others or something. But... I, but let me say this about the whole art of speaking, and I, I do a lot of it. Um, you know, you, there's, there's, I think, two aspects of it. One is studying how you do it, but that's not sufficient to be a good speaker. You have to do it in order to, to be good at it. It's just speaking is one of those things you've just got to get used to. And, and so if you can study and you know how to write, you know, say a persuasive paper or um, that's, that's necessary, but not sufficient. And if you know how to speak, if you're comfortable speaking, if you do it well, that's the other part. That's also necessary, that, that just getting the, the, the experience in it. That's necessary. But it also, there's a lot of people who speak a lot who still aren't very good speakers. So you have to really have both of those things. You have to be sort of trained in it in some way, and then you also have to just get experience doing it. And and like your your, your comment that, being able to write a good paper is necessary, but not sufficient, right? That made me think of the, the stereotypical college professor people complain about who gets up there and reads their lecture. <laughs> yes. Right. And maybe you've got a lot of good things to say, but it just doesn't affect the listener yeah. the way it does. If, if right. they, and you can, you can give a written speech it, it, and it can mm-hmm. be done well, but, but you have, to, that involves a little bit of practice mm-hmm. and it, it, you know, if if it's written properly, because there are things that are written to be read, 
And then there are other things that are written to be spoken. So if you've written your speech and it's written to be spoken and you know, you've outlined it and highlighted things and then you can get a little bit away from the text, that's fine. Cause I, hmm. I, I'd say maybe a quarter of the speeches I give are written speeches. If I'm giving one to a mm-hmm. big audience and I've never given it before, I'm going to rely more on the text and then have some anecdotes I can use to kind of, you know, take little side roads here and there to make it interesting. I, I speak, try to do that too, because only for the, so my reason is because I start rambling. And so we would be there for three hours, like that time at our conference when I didn't know I was supposed to speak about our curriculum. And they said, you have two hours. And I was like, two hours. And I'm not even like, um, I think Jim Selby was speaking and I'd literally jotted down notes during his speech and I was next. And I just somehow had missed that I was supposed to do this. And so I got up and then they were like, it's 1215. You've been talking for two hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> I wasn't even through every subject, but yeah. I do have a question. Yeah. Can you have ethos if you don't know anything about the person who is speaking and you've just come blindly to hear somebody speak, so you don't know anything about their reputation, you don't you don't have any kind of relationship with them, so is ethos just out the window? Uh, no. I mean, a, a good speaker, if he knows he's not known by his audience, then he's going to do something to establish that. Well, and that's why a lot of conferences or any, I mean, just talks given, they'll have somebody get up and introduce yes. that person. So an introduction can do that's that. That's establishing yeah. ethos. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, how many books you've written or what, whatever it is. Yeah. You also reveal your lack of ethos if you like are speaking about a particular discipline and you use terminology incorrectly sometimes. You can kind of reveal that you maybe aren't as well researched, mm-hmm. or in, but you're presenting yourself as you as mm-hmm. though you were. And I've, mm-hmm. I've experienced that. I've like listened to people and thought, that person's mm-hmm. not who they are presenting themselves to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I, I get like inquiries from people who just like want to speak. They, they're not particularly expert at anything, you know, because there's a whole bunch of people who want to be inspirational speakers. That's what they want to do. Yes. But they don't know anything. They're, 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 they're going to try to find some technique to, you know, uh, gin up their audience, but they don't really have anything to say. You have to have something to say. You have to be an experienced person. You have to be a well-read person. And you have to have have something that you're communicating, even if you even if you can communicate well outside that and but you really can't you have to have something to say we had pathos you and me when we visited that school recently and one of the administrators kept saying i and i see how passionate you all are about this <laughs> about this well, you do have to you you do that is pathos she I mean, said it several times yes yes I, she could tell that we were very passionate about latin <laughs> Well, okay, this is interesting. Paul and I went went down to a school one time, and they were converting over to a classical curriculum. And we uh, there was there was the there was several parents, probably three or four couples, I think, parent parental couples there, who uh, who didn't like what they did not like mm-hmm. this. They did not want this, and they caused trouble. And they were they were heckling almost. In the well, area. and this was uh, if this is the meeting I'm thinking of, like the administrator had intentionally invited mm-hmm. some families that were strongly against some, some family strongly for, and some like homeschooling families that said, we'll join if you make this move. So yeah. she wanted the different groups there to all yeah. hear. Did what you know this say. in advance that you no, were going to the hostile I, territory? I, I, we might have. I, 
you know, and I've been in, <laughs> it I, wouldn't have stopped them. Yeah. You know, I've been in lots of those situations, but, but, uh, so, so as the meeting went on, um, we, we, we gave our presentation at, at one point in the, in the, in the presentation, one of the Latin, you know, we have to sell Latin to, to people. And so those go, how are you, we're doing all this other stuff in the curriculum. You only have five days and, and you're going to add Latin to that. And Paul said, well, actually our school is a four day school. <laughs> and the whole place just erupted in laughter. Um, and, and he, he didn't, he, I, I he really had no did intention of, of embarrassing there. And but anyway, afterwards, um, one of the people who had been against us, he came up to us afterwards and, and Paul and I were both standing there. He said, you guys really believe that? He said, I, I thought this was going to be a sale pitch. You guys really believe this, don't you? <laughs> we had converted him because he knew that we were, we, we, we legitimately thought this was the best thing for the school. Yeah, we're nerds. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, coming back around, what do you say to the critique of someone who says, you have half a semester at, at most on rhetoric, there's no speech class. Are we really covering rhetoric in the Memorial Press curriculum? Well, I don't, okay, number one, I think it's hard to, to do that in any curriculum. It, it, it's just very hard to do this adequately. You have to have some, if you're going to be a speaker, you need to go on after K through 12 and you need to uh, do some more of this. You need, you, well, you, you just need to be, a, again, a better read, uh, a knowledgeable person. And then you have to just start getting experience in, in doing this. And, and, uh, and I, I think it's, I mean, that's, I've, I've spoken, I don't know how many speeches I've given in my life. A lot of it is just, is just getting up there and doing it because a lot of it is feeling comfortable in front of a crowd. Okay. Um, I had, if you have something to say, if you have something to say, so I mean, my, uh, I, I had founded another school here in Kentucky a number of years ago and, um, my daughter was, my kids went there and they had had a retreat. And so at this retreat, they had, it's a week long retreat. They had debate competition and speech competition. And so I get a call from, uh, I, uh, from the, the guy who I co-founded the school with, cause I, I couldn't go, I was doing something. And he said, I just wanted you to know that your uh, daughter won the speech competition. My daughter, who doesn't say much, who is very quiet, who is the last person you would think could be able to get up and speak, uh, won the speech competition. I go, what in the world? So I went up there because they were doing the debate competition the next day because I wanted to see what, and she was in it. And so I, I know she, she walks up to the podium and it, just her posture. And I, 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 I'm realizing her posture is helping to give her confidence in what she's doing. And the reason she has good posture is because she rides horses. Mm. I, there was this revelation to me that, that, that there is a confidence you have to have, which, which can come through various different things, but it helps little things like just having good posture, having a posture that makes it look like you are confident and that looking like you are confident and you know, you look like, like you're confident gives you confidence. You know, there's all the, these little things about, it, but something as simple as horseback riding can, can give you, and I think this is no mistake that the, the aristocracy horses were a big thing and, and having a, uh, a, a certain bearing to, to gave you authority. Mm. It automatically gave you authority because it, it, you, you had you have in a, riding horses. You have to sit with your back straight, um, 
But you, you, I, you I, think I, there's an analogy, maybe not with horse uh, riding, but perhaps with the other very difficult and thorough uh, work that our students are doing, it equips them with the kind of confidence necessary to, to have those raw yeah, skills later on. I think that, that you have to have something that gives you confidence. And, and you, you, maybe if you are horseback, maybe that's going to help you in that, that regard. But, but that thing that's going to give you confidence the most is just doing it and being used to it. But you know, and knowing we, that you know your stuff. And knowing that you know recently, your stuff. Recently, one of our teachers wanted to start a speech and debate, debate team. Mm-hmm. And and she said to the students that were interested, do you want, there's one this weekend, there happens to be one this weekend, we can sign up and go if you want to, and you can just try it. I know we haven't done, you know, we haven't done anything to prepare for it, but they won. Yeah. And they <laughs> they hadn't, and like one of our students, what? I know, I think I know why I finished that thought. Why they and I won? Want to talk, oh, why, okay. Why, yes, why somebody... <laughs> who came into a debate competition without having studied how to do it for these particular kinds of debates right. would do better. Mm-hmm. They hadn't, I mean, they hadn't had a debate class or anything. And they, um, and one of our, I think our just individual students came in first and third out of the whole, all the different schools competing. It mm. was crazy. Yeah. If you are well-read, you've studied things, you, you have, you write well, you, you express yourself well because, this is this is far more important than what many of these debate societies train you to do. Okay, because I was asked to be a judge at a, a, I won't name any names of business, certain organization that does debates, and I'm sitting there listening to these people debate, and they're saying they're they're pointing to the particular fallacies the other person committed and giving the, these these technical names, and they. They weren't giving a speech. It was like this little competition to point out particular procedural things. Nobody's convinced by that. It was, it was, comp- and I swore I'd never go back to judge this again because that's what they're, that's what you're supposed to be judging these people on. I'm not judging them on the basis of that. And I wrote, I wrote in my assessments what I thought on, on these, but it's not some particular training you get to debate. That, that's not what's, what it, you need to be a learned person. You need to be a confident person. You need to be a good person. That's what, that's what, mm. that's what the master mm. of all this says, Aristotle. You, you, to, to say what people think like, we're going to study fallacies. So when we're debating with somebody, we can point out that they're committing this fallacy. You say, well, that's the fallacy of undistributed middle. Your audience is going to go, what? <laughs> okay. This is, this is a big mistake in, 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 the, in mm. a lot of the training on this. Right. And which maybe speaks to kind of, my implicit critique in the question to you, we don't have a speech class is that a lot of times these speech classes end up being, you know, if you look at the five canons of rhetoric, mm-hmm. it's only talking about delivery. It's only talking about mechanics, mm-hmm. but what about memory? Mm-hmm. What about invention? Mm-hmm. What about arrangement? Mm-hmm. These are things learned through studying poetry and studying literature mm-hmm. and studying composition. Well, it, you know, and it's, it's interesting. Um, when I think about when I took a, I don't know what we call it, homiletics sermon class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we had a background in humanities and and writing and and like we knew a lot, right? Besides just the scripture passage we're going to preach on. But all that class was was literally four of us would be assigned to get up and give a sermon, right? And at the end, and everybody would be would be had a rubric where you were writing down things. But the question was, are will the audience? grasp what you're trying to give them and walk away with something that might change their lives. Right. Like that was the question. And so, you know, there weren't, there weren't 
significant. There was no lecture of the teacher saying this, these are the techniques you need to use, or this is, it was purely practice. Get up there, do it. We'll tell you what you did wrong. We'll tell you what you did good. And you do it again the next week. Yeah. The, the techniques are, are better taught in, in, in Coaching. a real situation. Coaching. Uh, uh, again, uh, William Barrett, uh, has had a uh, the philosopher had a book called the illusion of technique mm. this is this is a modern uh malady is this illusion that we can just master a technique and do something well you, you can't do that you've got to be a well-educated person which is why i think uh, classical education is the best preparation for this because it gives you something to say mm. the technique is easily mastered later on but you have to know what to say tony there are while we don't have speech classes, there are certainly places in the curriculum where our students are learning to articulate in front of their peers. And like you mentioned, in homeschooling, it's more difficult. What, what are some of the places where our students are actually working on the, the mechanics of even speaking their ideas out loud to others? Well, it starts with memory. So, you know, all the memorization and all of the um, reciting that we do, and we make them get up in front of the class and re- just recite things that they've mastered. So we're working on the public speaking part of it and their posture and all of those things we're working on with memory work. Mm. But then for them to actually narrate or um, create and then present would be the main place that they're going to get that I think is classical composition where they actually have to create some, but we get, you know, it's all within the context of something that they have read. Right. And yeah, because I've used this analogy before, but the, the analogy between exercises and playing the game, mm. what we're doing in, in that classical composition is it's, it's, it's exercises. It's like you, you, you're, you want to play football, so you go out there and you hit the bags and you, you do all this stuff that's, that you wouldn't actually do the, that particular way on the field. Okay, but you just do them so that your body learns to move in certain ways in certain circumstances. And then when you get out, so and you do so much of that, that when you get out and you start playing the game on the field, you do it naturally. You don't think about it anymore because you've done those exercises before. Those are two different things. They're both required. If you just did all the ex- did the exercises, you wouldn't be a good football player. And if you just, they just threw you out there in the field and, and play football, you're not going to do that well either. But if you do both, they, they work together. And I, and I think the role of education is not necessarily having a debate team. I mean, that's fine if you can do that, if you have that luxury. But you're, you're, you're doing fine if you're just doing these exercises in class. And, and, and then later on, uh, probably not, you know, I think it's best done probably later than high school. But uh, later on, then you give the game experience. Mm-hmm. And Tanya, I wanted to also add on to what you were saying about where, where we let students or where we help students through this. I think our practice of even from kindergarten, not allowing a student to sit there passively mm-hmm. is, is very helpful mm-hmm. because, you know, as they get in to, to the upper elementary and into, into middle school and we're having, we might be starting a, a, the rudiments of a discussion and pulling in that, that quiet student saying, okay, what do you think? And giving them that opportunity to, to speak, to either to be affirmed or be pointed in the right direction, however it is. So that way, by the time they are in upper high school, like they're used to saying things, even if it's just a group of 15 kids in their classroom um, and there's an adult there, they've gotten used to that kind of conversation 
um, where, yeah, there are a bunch of people listening to me say this. And if I mess up, I mess up. Right. Uh, I, I, I think that it started because they're one sentence things. Right. Mm. But just having to speak, because some kids just really don't ever want to speak in front of more than That's one right. person. Right. And we force it in the classroom. Right. At home, it's a little easier. But the, the problem at home is time, mm. is actually mm-hmm. having the time to have those discussions with each one of the children that right. you are homeschooling. So, mm. you know, that there are problems in both. It's It's just difficult. But it is part of... We aren't just selling curriculum. We're right. sell, selling a way of life. Yeah, uh, a way to to actually. We're we're not selling workbooks so that your student will go off by himself and right. fill it out. We're selling a workbook to help you and your student figure out what they should have gotten out of a particular passage that they've read, and then to have a discussion about that. And by the time you've had all those discussions from kindergarten mm. on, you become pretty good at discussing. Right. Um, and, and in regard to the the what of what you're saying, one of the things, one of the aspects of good speech is poetic. And I'm using that word in the broad sense. You have to have stories and anecdotes. The most, if you go back and you think of the most interesting speeches you've heard, they've involved anecdotes that are illustrations of what you're, that a poet, poetic illustration uh, of what you're talking about. I have, I have one speech, and it's probably 70% anecdotes. I, I give a, a talk on, on boys' literature, boys', boys books. And most of them are stories. And these are, and when, when I'm talking about stories and anecdotes, I'm talking about um, both things that you've read that you can give as examples, or things in your own life that those are the best. There's always something that happened to you that illustrates your point. And everyone should go back and listen to Martin's talk last year about his experience with getting arrested (laughs) because it was a very funny anecdote. And I I actually preached a sermon once where I used an illustration of when I also got arrested and I I saw a guy, brother, you're not not the only one on this podcast with a pass. Um, Wow, Paul, you and I are so boring. Where did you get arrested? Uh, I did get. I did get stopped at the. We've had a jail. I did get. I did get held up at the U.S. border, the ca- Canadian border, for hours but and hours. Sonia. Oh well, I got stopped. You're the only one of us who has been arrested. But I got stopped the other day, <laughs> but oh. he didn't arrest me. I got stopped on the way up to visit a school, and he said. No. Ma'am, you were driving 92 miles an hour. And I said, no, I never drive 92 miles an hour. I said, I was not driving 92. And he said, how? You don't say. No, I did. Because he, you know me, I'm just like, you are not telling the truth. Well, good thing you have experienced friends to break you out. That's right. He said, um, he said, well, how fast do you think you were driving? And I said, well, I was driving 80 because I have my crew set on 80. So yes, I was speeding. But I wasn't driving 90. (laughs) And so he goes back to his car and he comes back and he doesn't give me a ticket. Because of your honesty? I don't know why. Or because he was scared of you. I think he realized he pulled over the wrong person. (gasps) Because my crews would not have taken me to 92 when I had it set at 80. Mm -hmm. I think he believed that. This proves my point. (laughs) A guy saw me after I told this story in the sermon. He said, as soon as you mention law enforcement, everybody's listening. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. They know there's have a good, good story. Have good anecdotes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to end on a maybe a more personal note because I'm just curious. You don't think you being arrested is not <laughs> personal enough? 
Um, <laughs> How much more personal are we going to get here? <laughs> Please don't get any more personal than that. I, mean, I want to ask each of you to share with me your process when you're preparing a new talk. I'm just really curious. Oh, I find this fascinating. Well, I mean, well, Martin I, just likes the sound of his own voice. Yeah, sure. So for Martin, the process is just get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> um, I, I, I usually, I, 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 I can do two different things. Uh, I sometimes I write it out if it's a more technical thing I'm talking about. It's got you know more moving parts. I will write it out first, and the first few times I will be pretty dependent upon my text as I'm speaking. Um, on other things, it like like this one I'm doing on boys' books, it's basically just a list. Twelve books they don't want your boy to read, and why? Why you should read them? And um, and so in that case, I can literally just I put I list it. I put uh, I put the just a clue, uh, uh, little clues to the anecdotes I want to tell for each book, and that's it. And mm-hmm. I can go and as I'm doing it, I'm thinking of 13 more things, and and that sort. Of, so it depends on the kind of speech I'm giving. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Sometimes I bullet point it and sometimes I script it out. It really depends on the audience and the seriousness of it and, and really the topic. Really, that shows that you two are both very good writers. And that it, I'm not a writer. It reve- that's revealed by the fact that you can write a manuscript and then just present from that manuscript. I think most poor speakers, especially younger ones, it's because that first draft of their manuscript isn't good. And and it takes it takes time to I encourage I, I just went to seminary so I've been around a lot of preachers and people mm-hmm. trying to preach and I always am telling them like that first manuscript preach that three or four times then it's ready to go right mm-hmm. well and, and and also that back to that point of, um, of, of, of writing like you speak you, you have to be able to hear yourself mm-hmm. I've been doing mm-hmm. it long enough to where I can write my speech and I'm I can hear myself and I can know uh, no, I wouldn't. I'm not I wouldn't say, say it that way. way. I do it out loud, though. I do try to say my speech out loud after I've written it because for the mm-hmm. same thing. Yeah. And sometimes I'll say something will come out of my mouth and I'll be like, that just, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. I mean, that really is my final. I've wondered that test. about you a number of times. Where did it come yeah. from? Yeah. Where did that come You never stay around for anything <laughs> I've ever spoken on. You are never there. <laughs> but what about you? I, I always start with sort of, the idea, what's my major idea that I'm trying to communicate, break that down into an outline. How am I going to get there? And, and typically then from that to that outline, I add my stories. And then if, depending on how big this talk's going to be, I'll write it out into, um, into a manuscript or I'll just go, go off the outline. You start with the outline. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, Martin will admit to this. He's probably got, you know, a few talks that he, you know, that then you kind of Frankenstein together. Yeah. And so if it's, if it's one of those Frankenstein ones where mm-hmm. I've got, I've got three different sections from three different talks, but I've given those talks 10 times. I just, you know, got point one, point two, point three kind of thing. And I know how I'm getting there. Uh, but if it's, if it's a new talk, I'm, I'm going to write it out. Yeah. My husband does, he, for his sermons, he outlines and then he he writes the entire thing out, and then he takes it back down to a shorter mm-hmm. outline, and then he memorizes it, and then he doesn't preach so it, from. That's what I do. As is well. that what you do? I, I write it all out word for word. Yes, and then, then I, take it down. Then I like 
edit it, edit it, edit it, say it out loud, speak it to myself in the mirror, get it down to bullet points, and then make sure I can get up and just have like three or four words on there. And I find it so boring to have to go over and over and over it, but you really have to mm-hmm. for a new one. You just have to know what you're going to say. And that's, and that's, you know, I mean, for, for people that give talks all the time, right. And every single one of us saying we're going over this again and again and again for a high schooler to give up and give a talk. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's a lot to, you know, that they've, got to work through. I mean, it's yeah, a lengthy if you, process. If you're going to do that with students, if you're going to have them speak, you need to make it really simple for them. And I always say with the advice, I same advice I give for writing, which I got from, uh, uh, from uh, two intellectuals called Cagney and Lacey oh. uh, in, a, in an old <laughs> television program, which was uh, say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you said. And just keep the structure mm-hmm. real simple for them. At first, mm. just because they just need something simple to get up there and get in front of an audience and just get used to being in front of an audience. We're Cagney and Lacey? Oh, yeah. That's a detective show. Yeah, I know. So who said that on that show? I don't I, I don't remember. Okay. I just, one of them okay. said to the other, you know what my professor told me? And, she, oh, and I, okay. I always remembered that because it was, huh. it's a simple little formula. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is great. I'm spe- I am speechless, ironically. Well. I've enjoyed this conversation. I think we've answered the question pretty thoroughly. Why is there no speech class? Because all the speech and the rhetoric is is built into the classes that we're teaching yes. and it prepares our students to move on. Any, any last thoughts before we close? I've enjoyed this conversation. I'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, Consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.